Underdog Notebook Podcast, a podcast featuring the stories, trips afield, and legacies that are left following great gun dogs and classy bird dogs. I'd like to thank my sponsor, the Pride Dog Food, for their excellence in performance dog nutrition and Orvis for allowing me the written platform for my outdoor writing. I'd also like to thank the other friends and contributors that make this gun dog community such a great thing. Thanks for listening. This is the next episode of the Gun Dog Notebook, hosted by Darrell Smith. Right, guys, welcome back to the Gun Dog Notebook podcast. Okay, so I've had two conversations with a declared, absolutely declared living legend, Mr. Bud Moore, and I have just, I, I can't stop thinking about him. <laughs> and Mr. Moore, I'm so glad to have you on. Like, it is, I, I can't believe I've walked in the same bird dog museum that you were the foundation of, you know? <laughs> make you a humble man because every time you think that you've got them figured out they prove to you that you're dumber than a box of rocks <laughs> absolutely absolutely um well can you just give us a little bit about not a little bit a lot of it however much you want to go into your just history and background let's start from the beginning well we'd have to go clear back to where I was a, a little bitty boy I, uh, I'm half Cherokee Indian. My mother's full. My grandparents were full. And we lived with my grandparents on a ranch in Craig County, Oklahoma. And my grandfather loved to quail hunt and he loved coyote hunt. He had a large pack of coyote dogs and uh, two or three really good, what we call today, meat dogs. Mm-hmm. And uh, I adored my grandfather, and, and uh, I'm dyslexic, so I was a little abnormal as a child growing up. And my grandfather spoiled me rotten. Uh, he bought and sold cattle, so I got to go with him doing that. And I didn't do well in school, and it, so he just assumed I went with him and learned some real life lessons as to make everybody in school mad. Wow. Back when I was really young, nobody knew what dyslexia was. Right. So I uh, I struggled through the, through the early adolescence. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was always in trouble. Uh, I had a very active mind, and uh, there were a lot of cousins that lived within a mile of grandpa's, and my mother always said when we got in trouble, she knew who thought it up. Right. <laughs> right. But um, I loved all the my grandpa's dogs, and I knew all their names, and I helped feed them, and I helped take care of them. And uh, I learned to hunt following my father and my grandfather, uh, quail hunting. Right. And we did a little squirrel hunting, and I... I had my own 22 rifle at a quite young age, and uh, we would go into Benita to, to buy groceries and shop, and 
I would have them let me off at uh, my grandpa's brother's place, and I would walk home about seven miles. And wow. I hunted all the way home. So I I actually killed some quail with my twenty two rifle, along with a lot of rabbits and a lot of squirrels. And, so you were just uh, a really good shot, Jesus. Well... When you have a single shot twenty two, you learn to make every shot count. <laughs> you generally just get one shot. Wow. I just, it, I mean, that's just so amazing. Like nowadays, no one would even dare to go do something like that unless you had to. Oh, oh yeah, oh yeah. Delver Smith on more than one occasion took me quail hunting and he'd say, you're not allowed to kill anything but cockbirds. Mm. And he hunted with a 410. Wow. A single shot 410 or an over-under? He had a, a double barrel 410. Okay. So, and then he had a pump gun 410. <laughs> I, I don't know of any others that he had. I basically remember those two guys. But he didn't kill anything and didn't want anybody else to kill anything but cockbirds on the cubby rack. What? And Delver was one of the early influences on my life. I left home fairly early, and I had an uncle by the name of Dan Huddleston who lived outside of Oklahoma City. And Dan had been involved with the government agriculture department during World War II, saving genetics of uh, livestock out of Europe, specifically France and uh, the coastal islands during World War II, and, and he was involved in, in bringing a lot of British Spaniels into Canada. Mm -hmm. And so after the war, he was big into British Spaniels, and I started out campaigning British Spaniels with Elmer Smith. Wow. That is, that's crazy. So, I mean, because you're, you're working with pointers now, but so... Just what? How did what type of success, or what did you notice with the Britney Spaniels? Why did you why did you start with those, and and why was Delmar or Delmer, you know, campaigning for them? What about that little Delmar dog? Has, Delmar has always been involved in Britney Spaniels. Delmar had three sons, uh -huh. uh, and Ronnie and Ricky survived teenage. The youngest boy was killed in a. A bull riding accident quite early on in his life. Man. Uh, Delmer's, Delmer's younger brother, Ronnie, and I grew up together and were best friends. Uh, and Ronnie died of uh, stomach cancer in 1981. Uh, and I had dogs with Ronnie at that time. Uh, so I was very close to the Smith family. Uh, at one point in time, my father was superintendent of schools at White Oak, so that was just across the railroad tracks from Big Cabin, where the Smith family lived, in Big Cabin, Oklahoma. Wow. And so I knew the Smith boys, Ronnie and Delmer, and uh, Delmer, the boy's uncle, uh, who was a pointer uh, trainer. Right. But... My uncle being involved in Britney's got Delmer involved in handling and training Britney's. So, like a lot of kids that grew up out of the Depression, uh, Delmer did anything that would feed. 
Right. Uh, you know, he rode and uh, trained horses. He trained bird dogs. He did day labor. He did a lot of things. Just, you know, put food on the table. Mm-hmm. And um, my uncle lived in town, and he boarded dogs with Delmer. And so Delmer got to messing with the dogs, and Delmer has the knack. Right. Uh, Delmer Smith probably has forgotten more about bird dogs than the rest of us will ever know. Wow. Okay. And I mean, I love it. I mean, like as an aspiring bird dog trainer, I absolutely adore Delmer Smith. I, you know, his book was one of the first books that I went to to learn how to train a pointer. And I mean, I just I listen to him even now. Like I want to at some point if I can catch him because I I owe a lot of my fundamental understanding to that book, you know. Well, and the funny thing about that is, uh, is I was living that book when it was being written by Bill Terrence. Wow. Uh, the first one, you know, was called Delma Smith Trains Dogs. Yep. And uh, I, I literally spent all my spare time when I was on the loose at Delmer's kennel. And Delmer and I spent a lot of time traveling and talking. Of course, he appreciated the fact that Ronnie and I were best friends, his little brother. Yep. And uh, so. Wow. Uh, I mean, so what What was it for you? Like, what were some of the questions you had? Because you were living that book. So what were you thinking at, at 16 years old, knowing Delmer Smith? Oh, I was a little bit uh, annoyed that Delmer could do things that the rest of us could not do and that Delmer could see things the rest of us could not see. Uh, uh, and I'll give you an example of that. Okay. Uh, Delmer took me one morning early. It was 4.35 o'clock. Uh, we got up and, and got in the pickup truck and drove out north of Edmond, Oklahoma, onto the big ranch where they trained dogs. Mm-hmm. And uh, got out of the truck, and it was just almost false dawn, first light of dawn. And we walked for a ways through the blackjack country, and Delmer pointed to a big oak tree, and he said, you sit down right there, and I'll be back and get you when the morning's over. What? So I did. I went over and sat down at the tree, and uh, it was a long, long time. You know, that's that's been 60 years ago, so I don't remember exactly how long, but I remember right. it was most of the morning. Right. Delmer came wandering back down the pass and picked me up, and we're walking back to the truck, and he said, what did you learn this morning? <laughs> wow. What did you say? And I said, well, you know, I saw some owls, and I saw some coyotes, and I saw Cubby Quail walk out to go feed. He said, well, how did the quail act? Where did they go? What bushes did they use? Uh, were they nonchalant? Were they hiding? Were they going from bush to bush? Or were they just out helping? He wanted me to describe everything that had gone on that morning, knowing that when I repeated it to Delmer, that it would lock into my brain. And if I was smart at all and thought at all, at some point in time, I could pull that out and use it as a learning tool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's, 
that's the kind of man Delma was. Wow. And that's how Delma would influence you. Wow. Okay. 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 So, I mean, when in even the way in which he goes about speaking in the books, it was like he has a certain way of using words that to anybody that don't know bird dogs, I guess it wouldn't make sense, but it makes sense, you know, to me and this, the way that he kind of sees how things work together and the analogies. Did he speak like that? Yes. 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 His brain works like that. As I started the conversation off, Delmer sees things the rest of us don't see. And he knows things the rest of us don't know about animals because of this inner sense of being and seeing that Delmer has. It's as if Delmer becomes one with the animal kingdom or the environment in which he is residing. Wow. Okay. <laughs> that, I mean, and that, that, that speaks volumes, Mr. Moore, for somebody like you to say that, you know, um, I mean, you've had such a profound impact um, on the bird dog community. So, you know, just moving along, you went from Britney's. When did you move over to Pointers? The, the Britney world changed with the advent of horseback handling. And a lot of the 50s and 60s Britney folks had the false notion that they could prove that the Britney was equal to the pointer or the setter. Uh, and I was very, very good friends with a lot of the Britney professionals at, the, at that time. Uh, men like Jimmy Holden. First time I went to Canada was with Lee and Jimmy Holden. Uh, or Roscoe Staten. Roscoe Staten died this year. Roscoe and I were best of friends for mm-hmm almost 50 years and Mark Appleton was a Britney pro for a long, long time. And I remember when Mark and Ann first got married and he was an amateur. And then there's Lyle Johnson of, uh, Goddard, Kansas for many, many years. And then he moved over outside of Winfield, Kansas. And Lyle was one of the premier Britney trainers for years and years. And I still see Lyle and still correspond with Lyle and, and, you know, these were all men dedicated to the Britney Spaniel. And, but they all had kind of a chip on their shoulder and they wanted to prove their dogs could run with the best of them. Mm-hmm. And Rick Smith proved that when he placed uh, Packer Cheyenne Sam. He won the uh, three-hour international endurance shooting dog championship. So... They really did make the Britney into something that I didn't think the Britney was meant to be. What did you think it was meant to be? I preferred my Britneys to be shooting dogs or, or walking gun dogs. A dog that you could trial on Saturday and Sunday and kill a limb of the birds over on Monday uh, without the use of electricity or any other means of conveyance. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I told them all in 1979 at the national meeting, uh, I was there with Roscoe and Daryl Gaynor, and Daryl won the fraternity that year with a dog called High Spirit Bazooka's Pistol, 
that I finished the dual champion on for it. But uh, I got up at the national meeting and I said, we're doing something to the little dogs that we all love that and most of us don't mean to do it, but in my estimation, we're ruining the dog. And I've judged many, many, many Britney specialty things like the Quail Classic, the Pheasant Championship, the Prairie Chicken Championship, mm -hmm. uh, regional championships, all-age championships. Uh, and I don't think the Britney is any better today than it was 25 years ago. Really? No. Okay. Okay, that's so, interesting. Having done that, I was put loose and fancy free and running around the country anyway. Mm -hmm. And I stopped at Inola, Oklahoma for the Oklahoma Open Championship and watched Dr. Doran Hawthorne's Dr. Stormy Mack mm -hmm. go through the prairie country on the end of Tom McFarland Ranch and set the prairie on fire with a blistered hour out front ground race out real E-man all-age dog. Mm. And I don't remember exactly, but I think he had three out, three fives in the hour on wild Cody's birds. And I said to myself, self, you've got to have one of those. Wow, yeah. that'll It'll do it. I mean, when you watch them dogs run, it'll do it. And I, I understand exactly what you felt. Yep. When the hair on the back of your neck stands up, you know you're watching it. Oh my gosh! Yes, sir. Absolutely. That I mean. You may not be able to describe it, and you may not know exactly what it is, but you know you're watching it. Yep. Yep. That is, <laughs> Mr. Moore. That is. That's what sold me on a pointer. I was watching a buddy's dog, and when I look here, when I was telling you that that dog was huffing and puffing and blowing the prairie grass down. That <laughs> I don't know what it is about the way that that dog runs. So the feeling that you got um, was the same feeling I got the first time I saw a pointer run. Honestly, yes, sir, I believe it. Yep, they're they're magnificent athletes. I um full of grace and animation and style and mm -hmm. class. I and heritage and genetics. Mm -hmm. My, I have a very good friend, uh, Jerry Improvento, and he does a lot of photography for um, like Gundog Magazine and Covey Rise and, you know, those magazines. Well, he told me because I asked him about it and he photographs a lot of uh, English, uh, a lot of pointers. Um, and I was asking him before I decided to get one because it was between that and a German short hair. I'm sure you're familiar with that debate, right? And oh, yeah. And and he and I asked him and he said <laughs> he told me he was like, look, if you get dry, getting a German short hair is like having a Mustang. Getting an English pointer is like driving a Ferrari. <laughs> well, you, get a, you get a German short hair pointer. And I, I love the breed and for what they've done with it and what they do with it. They are magnificent animals. Mm hmm. As far as the shooting dog world goes, I just didn't have one of them anything, but I wish they'd leave their tails long like the Europeans do. Oh, my I gosh, yeah. A, a magnificent tail set on a dog. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, you get a short hair, and you run it, and you win with it, and you get your feet wet, 
and you know when you finally grow up and put your big boy britches on then you go get a pointer oh I was waiting on you to say that <laughs> Oh my gosh, you know that cracked me up the last time he said that, right? Well, that's, uh, that's the way I feel about it. You know, there's pointers and then there's all the other pointing breaks. <laughs> yeah. I, look, I'm, I'm here for you. I just, so just to tell you a little bit about myself, you know, I have a Labrador and he's a good dog. When I, 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 I think how you feel about pointers for retrieve, I feel about Labradors. I just think they're the ultimate retrieving dog, you know, in my opinion. Well, um, oh, yeah. and and I think there's a, I think you can understand why I say that. I feel like you understand that. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> and so I was going back and forth and I was just like, all right, if I'm going to do this pointer thing, I'm, I might as well do it right. And I'm from Georgia too. <laughs> so... I had to get a pointer. I was like, there's too much of my history embedded in the pointer. Like my, my wife's grandfather and her uh, father's side of the family, they're from Camilla, Georgia. You know, that's quail country. That's Red Hills. That's Red Clay Country. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. You know, my grandfather's from Columbus. You know, we, I, I inadvertently have a very long history with the Deep South. And so I wanted a dog that kind of identified with that. But then when I saw that dog hightailing it and, and running, oh, man. <laughs> um, I, I just really respected that. So you won your first field trial championship in 1964, correct? Yes, sir. 1964. My uncle Dan Huddleston and I had a little Brittany called Bill's Buddy Boy. Uh-huh. And Delmas Smith was handling the dog, and he won the U.S. Open in 1964 uh, with three callbacks. Oh, uh, really? So... Yeah, they ran the whole first series. They, you know, they did a drawing, and they drew the dogs out and ran the first series, and he had by far... And he was a flashy, classy, who danced through the country at a far extreme. I'm not sure he was hunting the country, looking back on it in retrospect, but he could go through the country right now. And he blistered the ground at Ardmore, Oklahoma, uh, but he went murderous. Really? So they had a second series, and they called six dogs back for the championship. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, he did the same thing. He went through the country and blistered it good and went birdless again. And the rest of the dogs were running a race, but not near what he was running this race with, but they were pointing a few birds. Mm-hmm. So they called back Buddy and uh, another dog for a third callback series. Mm-hmm. And uh, they set it up so that there was a bird field at the, at the end of the... Birds and Buddy went through the country with Birdless again. And but when he got the bird field, he pointed the bird, and they named him champion at the U.S. Open. Wow. 1964. And what did you feel like then? Because I know you had to feel. I mean, on cloud nine. Well, you know, I was in my early twenties by then, and I'd won a few field trials by then, and. Uh, 
it, it wasn't a dog that I had, I had bred or raised, and I wasn't handling it. Mm-hmm. So it was just kind of the notch on the belt kind okay. of for me. Okay. So your first dog then that you raised and you won with, what was that like? And when was that? Yeah, that wasn't until, gosh, oh, I don't remember exactly. What do you... I, in qualifying trial mm-hmm. uh, back in the late 50s, early 60s. Uh, I had a daughter of Towsie. Mm-hmm. Uh, Towsie was the only Brittany to ever win the Brittany Nationals three times. He won in 1955, 1957, and 1959. The first year, 1955, the stake was entitled the ABC Classic. Uh, the board of directors of the American Brittany Club in year, later years went back and changed the title of that so Brittany, so Towsie could be labeled as a three-time national champion. Wow. And Towsie had a profound influence on the Brittany breed. And I had a daughter of Towsie back then, and she was my first champion. Okay. And uh, her daughter was my second champion. And uh, it went on from there. I had five Britney champions uh, during the 60s uh, that all traced back to either Towsie or a Towsie lineage dog through High Spirit Bazooka's pistol. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was a, a dog that a friend of mine owned that was a whale of an all-age dog. But he was solid roan and not very pretty to look at. Really? Oh he man! Favorite of a lot of people. But he, I mean, but he was a good dog. He was a, a machine. Oh, he was a great dog. Yeah. Uh, and I showed him on the bench and made a dual champion out of him. Yeah. So not only was he a field champion, but he was a bench champion as well. So you knew he was made right. 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 Let me let me ask you this, and this is kind of a. I don't know. I always think about this and, and maybe you do too. And it's a very simple type of thing. Cause Mr. Mr. Moore, you, let me tell you, you already really just doing a lot for me. Um, as far as just blowing my mind with history, but a very simple question. What do you feel about people picking, especially a dog, like a pointer picking based off of looks? I, I, I have that issue myself like I want a very pretty white pointer and I, if I can even get the the orangish kind of spots on the ears and I know that sounds so simple but what do you think about people picking off of looks well my favorite color of bird dog is called pointed <laughs> yeah. and I don't care if they're gold with a short tail if they're solid black with a short tail if they're liver roan with a short tail or they're white and orange with a short tail, or they're pure white with a long, straight-up poker 12 o'clock tail as long as they're pointed. Right. And they're intense, and they're smoking the pipe, and they're telling you with their body posture just exactly where those birds are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But when you see a pretty dog, chances are you're looking at a dog that is anatomically correct. And mm. an anatomically correct dog runs better, quicker, smoother than a dog that is what we call a ground pounder or a tail ringer. So when you say you like a dog that's pretty, 
you like a dog that is well made, that's put together right, chances are the breeding and the genetics of that dog are right. Okay. Okay. So I I had to ask that, and I, and I know, like Mr. Moore, we had a conversation. I'm an artist. Okay. I um and I'm very formally trained. Um, and, and as far as fine art, and I know you know what that means because your wife is also an artist. Um, yes, sir. And I know when I'm looking at a, a, a good painting, I, you see what I'm saying? Like, I know what a very good, high quality painting is. I understand why paintings sell for many thousands of dollars because you're looking at something that is just aesthetically pleasing. Well, when you're talking about a dog, that makes perfect sense to me. You're looking at something that is anatomically correct. And I think that's a good answer for any of my listeners that are, you know, having that same type of question. I, I had a, a gentleman that I've been mentoring for about three years. Mm-hmm. He has a 12-year-old son, and, and I'm kind of mentoring the boy through him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he came to me one day, and he said, uh, I just bought a puppy. And he named me the bloodlines he bought the puppy from. And I said, all right, tell me why you bought this puppy. And he said, well, I need a young dog, and I want a young dog, and this dog has won some important trials. And I said, that's all correct, but have you seen the dog? And he said, no, I haven't. I suspect you have. And I said, yes, I've judged the dog. Right. And he said, I take it you don't like the dog. And I said, it's not that I don't like the dog, but the dog is not built anatomically correct. Right. Therefore, the genetics of his puppies are not going to be, you're taking your chances. Right. Don't breed that dog. I done seen out of this dog. You don't know what you're going to get. You don't know what that one will pass on to the next one. Right. Right. The next generation is going to mirror the first. Mama and Papa. Yep. Yep. And even when I was reading the um, when I was reading a Delmar Smith book, he actually said something about that, um, especially as far as a pointing dog's tail. He was saying, look, there's nothing you're going to do to be able to, and correct me if I'm wrong, I know you know, but there's nothing that you're going to be able to do to get that pointer's tail straight up at 12 o'clock. Mom and daddy got to get that to him. That's correct. That's absolutely correct. And I stress that in my seminars because a lot of people ask me on the barrel, I'm always stroking that tail up. What they don't understand is that I'm pushing that puppy forward when mm-hmm. I'm stroking that tail up. Right. I'm not just trying to get the tail to stand up there. I'm pushing him forward because I know he's going to naturally resist me, and that makes him stand still. Right, so, right. Which is what I'm trying to do on the barrel, is get one to stand all four feet, stand still, do not move. Right. And But uh, I tell people, and they ask me a lot of times, one of my very best friends is Dr. Stan Wendt. Mm-hmm. Is that is that the gentleman that you said um, work, you worked on the dog food with? No, Dr. Stan owned Honky Tonk Attitude. Okay, 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 okay. I'm and just trying to get my people. for all the Honky Tonk dogs. Okay. Gigolo and Finance and, and Shadow and, you know, there were 13 of them that Doc and, and Scotty Miller won uh, over 400 placements with mm-hmm. in about five years. Wow. Doc himself won not just his dogs. He himself blew the whistle over 13 national champions. What? 
What yeah. I'm Jesus Christ. I mean that they dominated the ABHA for years. Scotty Miller was the handler of the year for twenty seven straight years. I mean, and that's what I'm saying. How do you what does it feel like to go up against someone like that with their dogs? I mean, and I understand your friends, but Jesus, that's a lot. I mean, what were they doing with those dogs that was producing that? Genetics. God. That's crazy. That is wild. The honky-tonk attitude dogs were all known for sky-kissing style on birds. Right. High tails and that nose up in the air. Straight up in the air. And people are always asking me, uh, do you get that on the barrel when you do what you're doing to your dog? No. And I tell them, no, Mother Nature gives you that. Right, right. That's what that is. So, okay. So let me ask you this, and and, we, and I'm gonna get back on, and you know, I'm I'm here with you, Mister Moore. You are really blowing my mind. So pardon me for time, but when I um when I go pick this new pointer pup in February, I'm I'm thinking it's February. Um, what do you think about? Because it's gonna be one of the last LHU dogs as far as being able to use the name and stuff like that. Um, what do you think? about the L. Hugh bloodline? Like, just your honest thoughts on it and me getting it. One, I sent you two pictures when you asked me four pictures uh, for the cover of whatever you're going to put out. Yes, sir. Uh, and I sent you a picture of me standing behind a little female, a uh, heavy-marked female, mm-hmm. that uh, you'll have to agree has a, is about as stylish as any pointer you'll ever see. That was Shadow's witchy moment. Uh-huh. And on the fire line, she was total LU from Daddy all the way back. Wow. Okay. He's the granddaughter of Snakefoot. Okay. And I'm getting a dog that's so, coming from Snakefoot, yeah. One of one of the greatest dogs I ever had the privilege of blowing a whistle over. Really? She was walking puppy of the year, horseback puppy of the year, walking derby of the year, horseback derby of the year. Walking shooting dog of the year, horseback shooting dog of the year, uh, and had one leg to qualify her to go to Grand Junction. And I don't know how many young people, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 years old, won their first ribbon handling her in a youth stake. Wow. I mean, she was just a profound dog. She was, she was beautifully built. Yep. And smarter knows enough to know the difference between one of those kids and me, right. and me when I was walking, uh, and me up on top of the horse. Right, right. She could differentiate that, and that's actually something um, that's pretty important um, for what I'm looking for in a pointer. At some point, and it's not going to be anytime soon, but I want a dog that's going to be smart enough to be able to figure that out. I hope I get it. Because at some point um, down the line, I'm going to go down to Thomasville. And I told you about the gentleman, Neil Carter Jr. I'm going to work with him, uh, you know, on training my pointer as well. Just, you know, running dogs together and stuff like that. And I want and he does a lot of horseback hunting. Um, so I want a dog that's smart enough to be able to differentiate because I don't have any horses myself. 
you get my Molly tape and you mm -hmm. memorize every step of that Molly tape from the time that puppy's six weeks old. Mm -hmm. And you teach her how to walk in front of you. She'll be running while you're walking. Okay. And you teach her where the front is. And you encourage her to stay in front and be quick about it yep. by your body posture and your tone of voice. Yep. And you teach her that. And then you teach her how to run edges. Mm -hmm. And then you teach her how to run to a whistle and teach her how to whistle run. And start her off at about a, a 12 or 13 with these souls. Where uh, side to side or, you know, one of the side to side RTV machines or four-wheeler, mm -hmm. and she'll follow you at first. You just go fast enough, just barely fast enough to stay in front of her. Right. And she'll do that about three or four or five trips, and then she'll be doing her best to catch you and run alongside of you. Right. And when she does that, hit her with the whistle, slow down, and she'll find herself out in front, and you're encouraging and pushing her there instead of pulling her. Okay. And when you get a puppy that's 12, 13, 14 weeks old that you can push in front of the four-wheeler and hit with the whistle, and you'll see on the Molly tape, when Molly was four months old, 16 weeks, in South Dakota, she was running extreme range, hunting the country, rapid speed. I would run 15 miles an hour sometimes running parallel with her, keeping her on her objectives of running edges. Wow. And swap in to point wild birds. That's wild. Okay. And that's a young dog. And I'm and even speaking about the Molly tapes, because I wanna I'm I'm definitely going to get that from you. Um I got introduced to you through my buddy Richard Mumpower, who I definitely wanted to note and thank um for you know having me be able to talk to you. Um, but when I was watching, when I was watching your tape, the one that he gave me, it wasn't the Molly tape. It was the one you were in your living room. You know, you just, it's the June 2nd last summer's seminar tape. Yes. Yes. Started off with the school of AIDS yes. In yes, sir. Yes, sir. And I was actually about to say that you, you stress so much the school of eights and I have that, uh, the copy of that little sheet of paper right here in front of me, he made sure to give it to me and said, look, you know, your put it this way, Mr. Moore, your Delmar is my Richard, if if, if that makes sense, you know, and at, at a point, I mean, and, and, and he looks up so much to you. I feel so good about using your program and, and your training, you know, ideas and stuff in the school of eights just makes so much sense. We might explain to the audience that the school of eights is a series of words mm -hmm. that all end in A-T-E-S. Mm -hmm. And the first two on this list are anticipate and participate. Yes, sir. Now, which one of those comes first depends upon the situation. Mm -hmm. you anticipate is described as learning to read your dog, mm -hmm. learning that dog's body language, because I don't know of any human beings when they get their first puppy or maybe their second puppy mm -hmm. that have learned to speak dog. Right. Can't, can't do dogs it. Dogs are far smarter than we are, uh, and their brain synapses are, uh, and the ganglia are much more interconnected than ours are, 
and the synaptic gap is much smaller than ours is. So their brain actually works quicker than ours does. Right. And so the, the dogs really are quicker at learning things than we are. So mm. you need to learn your dog's every mood, mm -hmm. every gesture, the way they look, their body posture, because you need to learn to read that dog to anticipate what that dog is either trying to tell you mm. or what his next move is going to be. You have to learn to read his mind. Right. Otherwise, the dog is one step ahead of you, and the tail is wagging the dog as well as leading you on. Right. The dog is training you, you're not training the dog. So you have to learn how to anticipate so you can participate yes, sir. or get involved with your dog before the action occurs. Yes, sir. And I'll tell you a funny story about that. Go ahead. Go ahead. I Let's hear it. I have a very good friend who lives in Minneapolis, St. Paul now, who's a rather large young man, stands about 6'6 and weighs about 375. Wow. And his grandparents were very, very good friends of mine, my age. Mm -hmm. They both passed now, but he had one of the last red setters that they bred, and they were big in the red setter world. Really? They were involved in bringing red setter futurities up to the Kansas City Reed Wildlife Area in the 60s. Huh. And this little red setter had a whole lot of legs on it, and no background or training. One of those puppies that had spent most of its life in a pen. Wow. And so the young man came to me at a field hall one day and he said, Mr. Moore, he said, if I came down to your house, could you help me put a handle on this dog? And I said, sure can. And I said, can you come down what we've got Friday, Saturday, and Sunday? He said, no problem. Mm -hmm. I can be there Thursday night. I said, come on, Thursday night. So we put him up in the spare bedroom, and Friday morning, uh, we went up on top of the hill where my office is, where the bird box is, and my barrel apparatus is, where I keep all the tools for trade. Mm -hmm. And uh, I parked the four-wheeler there, and uh, he parked his truck, and he got the dog out on a leash, and I said, we're not ready for that yet. And handed him uh, an electric collar and a transmitter. And I said, put this on your dog's flank. And uh, I said, I've got another one here that I'm going to put on his neck in a minute. Yeah. And uh, so he bent over to put the collar on the dog's flank, and when he bent over, I just put the second electric collar around his neck. Yeah. Wow, just said, handling. Oh, what's that for? And I said, every time you don't anticipate what that dog's getting ready to do and you're too late hitting your button, you'll hit your button because I've already hit my button. <laughs> wow. I'm sure he figured it out then. He figured it out real quick. <laughs> wow. Mr. Moore... That's cr wow. That is a, a pardon my friend. That is a hell of a way to train. <laughs> well, it taught him how to read his dog and how to anticipate, so mm -hmm. he could participate. Right. Let's... And he learned to communicate with that dog through the electric collar. I don't in I don't encourage that. 
But this was a dog about a year and a half old that was already set in its way. Right. And he was going to do You take a young puppy and train it the right way up, all that electric collar ever becomes is a reminder to that dog on the very lowest setting that, hey, the boss is still in the country. Right. When he speaks, you look up and give him eye contact. Right. So let me pause you right there, Mr. Mr. Moore. And this is something that a lot of my listeners know. I don't I don't use an electric collar on my lab, but I'm I'm not one to just rule that out with this pointer. Is it is it something that you could honestly tell me to say, hey, it's worth investing in? And because I and I don't need an electric collar for my lab. He's the type of dog that. You know, he'll listen 150 yards away without. And I was actually using it before and it messed him. And I was I feel like I was messing him up when I took it off. He was totally fine. So with this pointer, because I'm going to be working this dog for trialing and a bunch of different things, in addition to hunting, is that something you would say, hey, Darrell, like that's not a bad, bad thing to use? You wear a belt with your britches? Yes, sir then you need an electric collar for the dog. <laughs> not dressed without it. Okay. All right. All right. I will end. And what, is, what are you going to do if that dog, as a young puppy, flushes a rooster pheasant or a hen pheasant and chases it and you're 500 yards from a county road and just about the time that dog gets to that road, along comes the milk truck picking up milk from the dairy farmer that lives down the road. Oh. And that semi's running 40 miles an hour, and he can't stop. Right. That's pure chaos without that collar. That's pure chaos without that collar. Yeah. What are you going to do when that dog points a buck laying in a bed, and you go in the flush, and that buck jumps up, and that dog runs off chasing that buck? nothing if you ain't got a collar i understand hey look i i totally right. understand and all right yeah i the dog you have to understand an electric collar is used three ways the first way is as a set of brakes on the flank mm-hmm. the flank of the dog is always the brake pedal mm-hmm. the second way is the head and neck which is the steering wheel of the dog so when you're teaching that dog, whoa, stop, stand still, where are you going to have electric collar? On his flank. Right, right. When and you're teaching that dog to come here, turn when I yell, whoa, whoa. You're going to use them on the neck. Because you're coming to a corner, where are you going to put that electric collar? On the dog's neck. Uh-huh. Now, I said there were three ways, didn't I? Yes, sir. The third way is the wrong way. An electric collar is never made for punishment. Right. It is a teaching aid. Okay. The only thing you should ever use an electric collar for is to remind that dog you spoke to it, and when you speak to it, he needs to turn his head and give you eye contact. Right. Absolutely. And you said that when we were talking before. You said you don't go above a two. No. No. Yeah. That's that's crazy. I mean, they have so many different settings on these collars nowadays, but a two is just fine for you. That speaks volumes. You know that, right? <laughs> it does. Um, it, well, it, yeah. 
training a, a young dog is an everyday thing. Yes, sir. Uh, you know, I, I stress heavily, if it's not on paper, it did not happen. Okay, so can I break you one? Can I break you one more time, Mister Moore? Real short, though. So I said, can I can I stop you real quick, real quick? That last statement, and I, I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm just so inspired. Um, that statement, if it's not written down, it does not exist. Yes, that is why I started the Gun Dog Notebook. My my. Um, I guess at this point I would like to call it a brand, but it's a podcast. But it, originally it was a, a oh, now a old beat up composition notebook. And I was recording everything that I could about my lab. So it just the reason I'm so sold on your training is because of that methodology. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, it just uh, the human brain is such that. Uh, if I ask you to defend your stance on a topic and you have to go through your mind and rationally evaluate and put a sentence together that has a start, a middle, and a finish mm-hmm. to explain your area, that will stick in your brain forever and ever and ever. Right. If I ask you to write it down on paper, you will remember it 10 times more likely than you will if you just say it once and forget it. Right, right. With puppies, you repeat every lesson three times. Three is the magic number on a puppy. With human beings, it's seven. You know what? I'm a very spiritual person. Um, Three is a very significant number to me, Mr. Moore, so that's interesting you said that. Go ahead. But every story... Every sentence and every plan has a start, a middle, and an end. Correct? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Every start, every finish. So, yeah. If you're talking about training a bird dog, that's called pre-planning, mm-hmm. planning, evaluation, and post-planning. And it is an everyday thing. When you get your new puppy, I want you to get you a great big calendar at the lumber yard or the co-op or, you know, whoever's got the one with all of the old custom cars on it or the old-fashioned cars on it. Yeah. got two-inch square blocks for each day of the month. Okay, will do. And I want you to write in that square every day what you did with that puppy. I'm going to send it to you. How about that? And I'm going to write it down. At the end of the month, you'll be amazed how many days there's a zero in there that you did nothing. Really? And that now. At the end of the month, if there are more than three zeros, that's what your puppy learned. Zero. (laughs) Wow. Wow. That's a challenge, though. I mean, it's, it's, I'm sorry. That is a challenge for a lot of people. I'm not. I'm not honestly going to say that's going to be a challenge for me. <laughs> and I want to make sure. The challenge yeah. is that this requires thinking. Yeah. And thinking is hard, not only for people, but for dogs. Yeah. One of the things that I do in my method of training is I get their feet off the ground. Yeah. I believe firmly in barrel training. Yes, sir. And people are always asking me why. 
because when you get a dog's feet off of the ground, it's not a natural situation. Yep. It makes the dog depend on you. Mm-hmm. It makes the dog concentrate, and it makes the dog think. Thinking stresses a dog out. Mm. Wow. Uh, <laughs> what? Yes. You put a dog on the barrel, and the more you try to instill in that little puppy or that older dog's mind, the more stress you put on them. So you have to have a way of getting that dog to relax. Yep. One way is eye contact. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Another way is soft hands. And, and when you hit, put that young dog up on the barrel, and I start my young puppies up on the barrel at six, seven, eight weeks. Wow. Yeah. It may be only three to five seconds. But I want them to stand up there, let me put my hands on them, stroke the tail up, push their little butt forward a little bit, mm-hmm. and start between their front legs and go up under their chin and stroke them from the bottom up. Yep, you said the bottom up so was important too. Standing with the tail up, the head up, all four feet squared up, and they're comfortable. So, I would I would even say just to add to that. Um, just for any of my listeners that are, I guess, trying to remember something like that, for a pointing dog, especially a pointer, just everything up. I wouldn't. I would go so far as to never do anything on the on the downward to that dog. Does that make sense? Like, if I'm gonna pet, and you said this the other day I too. That in my seminars. Yep. That's don't right. don't even don't move downward. Don't pet a dog on top of his back. Don't pet a dog on top of his head. Yep. Yep. Come from between his rear legs, stroke up on each side of his plumbing, and go up that tail. And when you're up there, you push forward just a little bit. Right. Naturally, he's going to resist you and push back. Right. When he pushes back, then he's squaring his body up. And if his head's down low, he can't push back. Right. So the more he pushes back, the higher his head gets. He's edgy, it's, they work in opposites, it seems like. So that is wild. Water dog that's got a high head and a high tail and stacks up naturally. And you know, I'm I'm kind of an egomaniac. I've got a very big ego. Good, me too. Oh, Good. <laughs> and when I win, I want my dog to look bright and brilliant and flashy in that winning picture. Mm-hmm. 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 And we won six times with Molly this fall. We put her in six fields aisles and we won six times. And Molly is a young dog. She was six months and one day old at the first trial. God. I, wow. I mean, that's so, that is wild. And <laughs> so, I mean, we're just going back down to school of eights. It's proven with Molly. That's right. You accelerate the learning curve. And yep. you separate you and your dog from the pack. Mm-hmm. Now, you've been hunting with people before yep. that had ill-mannered dogs. Absolutely. I'm I'm proud to say that mine is not. You've been with a, with a man who's continually all day long hollering at his dog, cussing at his dog, you know, come here, come here, you SOB. Yeah, no. And then when the dog does, he finally does get his hand on the dog. He's really rough. He's really snatching and jerking and 
Yeah. And that dog learned a couple of things. Right. One is I don't like you any better than you like me. And two is I'll be damned if I'll let you catch me the second time. Right. Right. I, I, I can agree. I mean, there's a certain level of mannerism that I respect out of my dog. Um, and it's just, it's a social thing. I don't, I just don't want to be that person. I absolutely agree. Yeah. And I even, you know, to admittedly ran into my own situation where my dog is two now and I went out hunting with a buddy and they brought a girl out and he lost his mind. Like, you know, being a boy and Oh my gosh, I cannot tell you how embarrassing that is. And and I'm you know, there's a there's a point in me where I'm like, okay, my dog's not, you know, he's he's still intact. So I get it, but oh my gosh. But that is for me, honestly, Mr. Moore, and, and I'm speaking about my lab, um minus being around a girl, I can honestly say he's a pretty mannerable dog, uh in the field like if we're hunting with a bunch of other boys he's just fine so um but you know just well part of that's your fault i know part of that genetics but part of that's your fault tell me why you didn't think ahead Mm -hmm. you didn't pre-plan you didn't ask the right questions so what you didn't school your dog on how to be mannerly with the opposite sex you're right so how would you have done that if you were in my shoes? Well, you don't do it today. You're going to take the dog's home. Right. You do it in a in a training session. Now, the training session to me means that you have a game plan. Mm-hmm. You have something on paper. Mm-hmm. You have asked yourself the key questions. What? Why? How? When? Okay. Where are we right now where do we want to be at the end of this training session what do i want to do in this training session right how are we going to get to this point in the training session Mm -hmm. what do i have to change to reach this destination in the training session you see where i'm going with this yes sir i absolutely do so you're going to have to get somebody that has a female and you're going to have to have your dog on heel and have them introduce their dog to you when it's either on a sit or on a heel. Right. Which I do. I mean, now yeah, Richard has a girl. Yeah. Knows that when he's told to sit or he's told to heel and he's trained, he knows there are consequences if he moves off the sit or he leaves the heel, doesn't he? Right. But now what about hunting, though? Because he'll just chase her. Nope. Nope. When you introduce her in a training session, then you're going to both of you walk side by side at heel. Okay. You're going to have electric collar on your dog, aren't you? You're going to have it on one. Right. Lowest setting. Whatever the lowest setting is. Mm Mm-hmm. When that dog pays more attention to the girl than he does to you, what are you going to do? You'll nick him. You will have already anticipated his his adoration to the female. Mm -hmm. You will have participated by having that collar with your thumb on it already, and then you will communicate with that dog by buzzing him with one. Is that going to hurt him? 
No, it's not. No, but it's going to tell him, hey, I'm still the boss. You're right. still an eel. Right. You are talking or articulating to that dog, communicating, if you will, to eliminate that problem behavior. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. It does. Absolutely, actually. Okay. Now, when you've had a training session or two, and everything is all right, and he's not paying attention to the little girl, then you turn him loose and you go hunt together. He's still got his electric collar off. Mm-hmm. The first time he shows bad manners, what are you going to do? Pop him one, one, one time. You're going to communicate with him, aren't you? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And that doesn't mean you have to come to him. You're just going to remind him, hey, the boss is still here, and that's a no-no. Okay. You are going to accentuate the positive and eliminate the negative. That makes sense? Yes, sir, it does. Yes, sir. Look, you went down that. I don't know how many times you've said the school of eights, but I'm telling you, Mr. Moore, (laughs) you got to you have a a very, very, very convinced uh, friend. But also, I'm just convinced as far as a handler, it works. And I am not about to sit here and argue about, you know, with that. It works. All right, guys. So. I hope y'all understand what y'all are listening to. And that was half of the entire conversation. I sat there and spoke to Mr. Bud Moore for two hours and about six minutes. So there is a part two uh, to this episode. But just be mindful of what I'm trying to present, guys. Um, I really think it's important to stress authenticity and history, especially me as a new, young bird dog handler, dog handler, upland bird hunter, all of those titles, podcast host and everything like that. So right now is just a special point in my hosting experience, I guess, if you call it that. And I appreciate you all for allowing me to assume the responsibility of making sure that the people that I talk to are, I mean, are are monumental in one way or another. And I take a lot of pride in that responsibility. So anywho, because I take that type of pride in who it is that I present to you guys, I just want to conclude part one of Bud Moore um, first and foremost by saying thank you to my gun dog notebook ambassador, uh, Richard Mumpower, who introduced me to Bud Moore. And this is what I'm going to be using to train my little English pointer. And also to Hunter Morton, who, and Hope Morris. I, 
Uh, I just think both of them have really supported a gun dog notebook as ambassadors as well. So I want to encourage you guys to reach out to those guys um, because those are the folks that motivate me to continue moving forward. But anyway, outside of that, guys, stay tuned. Um, there is a whole part two, guys. Stay tuned.